We continue in our series in the, in the book of James. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the epistle of James. We're still in chapter one. And uh, we're gonna look at a couple verses this morning. I, I read this week, there was a man who was battling his diet. And one day while driving into work, he knew he would pass by a familiar donut shop. And he thought to himself, a cup of coffee would be a good thing right now, <clears throat> since he had only one that morning. But he knew that the possibility of having donuts would not be good. So he prayed, God, if you want me to stop and get a cup of coffee and a donut, then make it so there's a parking spot right in front of the shop. He said, sure enough, I found a spot right in front of the shop on my seventh time around the block. We can laugh at that because it's just a donut, right? There are many that want to be delivered from temptation, but just want to keep it around for the future. But we will never grow as Christians if we continue to entertain the possibility of sin. Proverbs 7 paints this picture vividly for us. Proverbs 7 says, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. And then later in that chapter, verse 21, with much seduct seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O oh sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her past. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way of Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. This morning, James is going to unpack for us the, the dangerous pattern of sin. And he's echoing in some ways what we just read in Proverbs 7. And I believe he's going to minister to us about the necessity of understanding temptation. There are some misconceptions, though, I think, about temptation. Some believe we just fall into temptation. Some believe God is displeased and disappointed when we are tempted to be Strongly tempted, some believe, means that we are as guilty if we actually committed the sin. Some believe that when I'm spiritually mature, finally, then, I will no longer be harassed by temptation. Some also believe that all temptation is the same. All, all are misconceptions of what temptation is. And I believe James will uncover some of these misconceptions. And I've been, I've been praying this week that this passage, this sermon, would minister to your hearts this morning. So, Join with me as I read. I'm going to read starting at verse 1 all the way through verse 18 to kind of give you the, the context of what James is saying here. And so we're going to read, and then I'll pray, and we'll get started. James chapter 1, starting at verse 1. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the 12 tribes in dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, 
lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I'm gonna pray. I'll pray for you, you pray for me, and we'll get started. Father, we, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that we can spend this time gathered together looking at your word. And, and God, I ask that you would help your people to understand. And I ask that you would speak through them, that they wouldn't be so focused necessarily on what Jeff says, but they would see what your word says. They would understand it, that they would apply it, that they would come away different, changed, because they've spent time with you this morning. God, we, we ask this all, we, we, we do this all for your honor and for your glory. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. If you remember, this entire section of James is concerning how we, how we handle trials in our lives. James' overarching desire, his goal is to help us when we're faced with trials in our life. And so when we get to verses 13 through 15, it's no different. It's still in that context. Trials uh, that are brought into our lives by God can lead us to either endurance and perseverance and growth in the gospel and hope in God, or they, they can lead us away from God and to despair led there by temptation. And this morning, I have three points. If you have your notes there, they're listed. Uh, first, the nature of temptation. Second, the source of temptation. And third, the process of temptation. So we're going to look at the nature, the source, and the process of temptation. First, the nature, verse 13. You know, we live in a culture right now of one that likes to pass blame. Will Rogers once remarked that there are two errors in American history, the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. And James is diving into this hot topic because his dispersed church has the same tendency that we have. It's, it's someone else's fault when I sin. And who is to blame when we're tempted to sin? You know, there's a logical progression in James' words to us, starting in verse 2 all the way through verse 18. And we need to count it all joy when God brings trials and troubles into our lives because he's working to bring perseverance to our, our faith in him. And when trials come, we need to ask God for wisdom, for help that only he can bring. And our focus and our hope needs to be in God and God alone. 
And we can't have a divided faith. We can't have a faith in, in God and faith in the world. It's in God alone. We're faced with, with trials of want or plenty, our need, our hope. It shouldn't be in this world, but be in God. He is the one who has blessed us beyond this temporal status here on earth. And, and we are to persevere in him. And when we do, he says, we will be with him in eternity. And so when trials come, we can have the opportunity to disbelieve God. And our temptations to walk away from trusting him are found within only our wicked hearts. And if we allow these desires to take root, they will bring forth sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, will bring forth death. And we can't be deceived. God is good. He is good. And he, he works for our good and for his glory. And James writing here for us is penetrating. There's so much for us to learn and apply in this first chapter of James. And, and it may seem that James turns a corner in verse 13, but really he's just tying it together to what he's already said in the first 12 verses. When trials come into our lives, we are tempted to blame anyone else but ourselves. Because at our core, we want what we want. And when we don't get what we want, we look for satisfaction in anything other than God. So let's look at the nature of temptation. Verse 13, chapter 1. James says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. Right off the bat, James uses the word tempted, and when we look behind uh, the word and look into the Greek, we can quickly notice that this word comes from the same word earlier, trial. Same Greek word. But why does it say trial earlier and now temptation? It's used much differently. Then in verse 2, God is seen testing the Christian. And this is something that God does throughout the scriptures. Genesis 22, when God tested Abraham, right? Or in the book of Job, or, or Israel being tested, as we've seen in Judges chapter 2. God can test those that he loves, but he never tempts them to sin. And when I look further into the use of the Greek, and I had fun this week. I really did. I, I, I really love my job. Getting into the Greek of this. It's used a lot in the Gospels. Can you imagine why or when this word tempt is used in the Gospels? It's used a lot when Jesus is either being tempted by Satan or being tempted by the Pharisees. Are any of their motives good? You can answer, sorry. I... No. It's, it's done. The word tempt here in this way is, is meant to trap someone. This word for tempt means to attempt to entangle a person. Right? You remember, think through the Gospels, those times where Jesus, especially with Satan and the Pharisees, it's, it's done with malice and enticement for improper behavior. And, and, and friends, this is not our God. He isn't able to entice us to sin. God tests, but he never tempts to sin. And this has been our issues ever since the beginning of, of when we are tempted, who to blame. In Genesis 3, we read about the fall of mankind. Eve and eventually Adam are tempted to believe, disbelieve God and take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they, they do succumb to this temptation, the results then of spiritual death. You remember, though, how Adam responds when God questions him? He blames two people in that response. Do you remember? Genesis 3.12, the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. First, he blames the woman, Eve. The, the helpmate for, for his life is the one that he first blames for eating the fruit, and second, he blames God, the woman whom you gave to me. And we've been doing this blame game ever since. 
God didn't cause Adam and Eve to sin. They chose to. God didn't tempt evil because it goes against the very character of God. In fact, God says that when we are tempted, it's from someone inside. It isn't maybe you, you will be tempted, actually. I love this in the verse. It's, or, or possibly that you might be tempted or, or the, the, the happenstance that temptation will come. No, he says when you are tempted. It's not an if, it's a when. When you are tempted, he says, don't blame God. He cannot tempt you to sin. No, instead, Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he, God, will also provide a way of escape that you will be able to endure it. God doesn't tempt us to sin. Instead, scriptures say he's there to help us not sin. And this is huge for our understanding on the nature of temptation. Verses 2 through 4 earlier and verses 13 through 15 here are, are parallel options for the Christian. When trials come into our lives, it can either first bring perseverance and maturity or second, bring death. And what changes a trial into temptation is our response to it. And do we blame God? Do we blame others? If you're prone to blame others or to blame God, then the pattern in your life is that when you're tried, when you're tested, you, you don't want to mature. You don't want to persevere. You just want out of the trouble. And God will continue to bring trouble into your life because he cannot let you stay the same. So the, the nature of temptation is never from God. The nature of temptation is from the inside, not from the outside. And the world doesn't want to hear this. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you don't want to hear this. I'm going to preach it anyways. Because we've been conditioned to believe that when temptation comes, temptation comes from the outside, not from the inside. Friends, God won't woo you to sin. He won't seduce you to sin. He won't attract you to sin. That would be a violation of his very character to do so. God would never do that. And there's a huge difference between the cause and the occasion. The, the, the occasion is the test, but the cause is yourself. Let me give you an example I read this week. Your teacher gives you a test at school that you weren't expecting this week. The purpose of the test is to show what's in your heart. But if the student hasn't learned the material, the test doesn't cause the student's failure. What causes the failure? It's the lack of discipline. It's the lack of knowledge by the student. But that's not how we think when we fail a test in school. We blame the teacher. It's that stinking teacher's fault. I wasn't ready. I, you needed to give me more warning. You need to teach this better. All the teachers are saying, yep, that, that's what I hear, right? That's not true. The, the test and the occasion are two different things. The test is the occasion of the failure, but didn't cause it. I mean, maybe you're thinking, I, I've never blamed God for tempting me to sin. And I'm here to say, yeah, yeah, you have. I have too. I've heard people say things like, my husband just doesn't understand. He doesn't care. He doesn't love me. He doesn't act the right way. Or my, my kids are just driving me nuts. They constantly disobey me. There's, there's so much fighting in my house. Or my, my coworkers are always out to hinder me, and, my, and, and they're, they're blocking me. They're rude, selfish, self-centered. Or, or if my pastors or elders were a little more understanding, or, or my boss, why aren't they more flexible and compassionate? 
or, or my parents, they just don't understand me. Do you hear anything that sounds remotely close to a situation in your life? You see, friends, what you're doing is looking outside yourselves and pointing to those circumstances. And we are indicting the God of the universe who brought those circumstances and those people into your life. You're subtly saying to God, you don't know what you're doing. God, you should have given me a better spouse. You should have given me better parents, God. You should give me a better boss, a better teacher. God, you got this wrong. And in that, we blame God. And James says we can't do this. James says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So that's the nature, and then James informs us to the, the source, secondly, the source of temptation. Hey, he, James moves from the external source of temptation that we want to believe, and now he's refuted, now to the internal source of temptation. And friends, it's in us. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, now listen, no one wants to hear this. And this isn't going to get you any new friends. But you never sin except for one cause. There is only one cause to your sin. It's that you want to sin. Nobody makes you sin. I can't count how many times I say this in my house. To my own heart, to my kids. No one makes you sin. No conditions make you sin. You only sin because you desire to sin. And this is very important for us to understand. This is vital for us as believers to understand and for our culture to hear from us. And the world wants us to say that when we sin, it's because something outside of us caused us to sin. And the world echoes Adam's world. It's not me, it's her. It's God, it's someone else. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says your biggest problems are not outside of yourself. Your biggest problems are inside of yourself. And who does this apply to? Who is James talking to? He says it's very clearly in verse 14, each person. Not some people or just a few people, but each person. It's every single one of us here this morning. We're not exempt here. Each one is tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desires. And there's some strong imagery here that James uses. All of us face temptation to sin, and that temptation comes like a lure, an enticement. Lured and enticed here are words that mean to be dragged away or pulled away. It is actually words that is used in, in a sexual way, to be seduced. And James follows this graphic example to its completion for verse 15. He says, after you've been seduced by your evil desire, there's conception, and then there's birth. And then, believe it or not, there's a grandchild because it says in verse 15, the desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin and when sin is fully grown brings forth death. And every one of us has the capacity to be enticed and lured away from trusting God. And, and James is persuasive by using an analogy here of hunting or fishing. Now, I'm not a hunter, I'm not a fisher, but I've caught a few things before. I've learned that to catch a mouse, you put down peanut butter, it works. Lures them right there. When I was a kid growing up in Michigan during the hot and humid summers, we would sit outside at night 
And at night, we would have this amazing device that we would hang. Um, I don't know where we hung it from, but it hung up top. And it was for mosquitoes. And we called it the zapper. You guys have one of these? And we just turn it on and just watch. It's mosquitoes, zoom, it's gone. Like a moth to the flame, just going right in. Lured, enticed, death. This is what James is saying. He's relating to you and I. The bait hides the hook. And James says that we're hooked by our own bait. Our lives are like that of a castle, built strong and fortified, protected, it seems, at every corner. No one can come in. There are guards on the outside. But friends, we have a traitor on the inside. It's us. James says this. We don't like it. We don't want to admit it. But the Bible emphatically declares this. Mark 7, 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. But we don't want to hear this. The world definitely doesn't want to hear this. That the castle may seem impenetrable, but there's an enemy inside. And maybe this is new to you, friends. The Bible says we're all born sinners. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You and I are not born innocent. There's no one innocent. Every single one of my children, as beautiful as they were the moment they were born, they were born into this world with sin reigning in their hearts. And it's dominion over us and it affects us. And when Romans 5.12 says that we all sin in Adam, it's the, the artist tense, which means that we share such solidarity with, with him that we actually sin when he sinned. And of course, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, and you should be, we have proved this over a million times over. The bait for, for luring and enticing our hearts isn't outside of us, friends. It's right inside each and every one of us. And yes, Satan can tempt us, and he does, but he only uses what's at his disposal in our own hearts. And what is the, at the core of these temptations? James says at the end of verse 14, by his own desire. Let me pause and spend some time here because here we find the truth of why we do what we do in this life. In other translations, it might say lust. Perhaps newer translations maybe says evil desire, but it's from the Greek word uh, epithymia, which Tim Keller calls an over-desire. It's like an epidesire, epicenter, actually, of, of desire. Sorry, he uses the word epidesire. The translations here, what you have, and as I've studied, can be somewhat not full and give us a good understanding. They're, they're trying to translate the word as best they can, but... I don't think it communicates as clearly for us. I guess that's why we need preaching, to expose God's word for us. And I know I've said this before, but it needs to be repeated. The process of sin is not that we always want bad things. It's that we always want things too badly. It should be called an epidesire. It's an epicenter. It's an over-desire that then seduces us. And this is some powerful imagery here for us. 
When we talk about sin, we cannot just talk about it from the view of, of the New Testament, too. It's like reading only half the book. The Old Testament gives us the understanding of how God views sin. And in many Old Testament passages, it's characterized as spiritual adultery. I remember sitting with a couple a decade ago who was considering marriage, and, and they were shocked when I said that marriage wasn't invented by man, but that yet God invented marriage. They never heard it before. It was his plan. He invented it. But not only that, we see the fingerprints of the marriage relationship with God and his people. In the Old Testament, God shows himself to be the husband and his people to be God's wife. And so the scriptures in the Old Testament don't just see sin as, as breaking the rules. No, it's spiritual adultery. And James uses the same imagery as we get into James chapter 4. He says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Where did James get that? From the Old Testament. So we need to change the view that we're, we just fall into sin. We, we somehow just succumb to temptation. We try to paint it another color, but, but to God, our sin is plain spiritual adultery. When each person is tempted to leave the love of God, they are lured and enticed and seduced to leave their lover of God for a new lover. That's why you do bad things. That's why you sin, because you love it. You want it. There isn't just somehow slipping. No, it's not an oopsie-daisy. It's you love something more than God. So when the Bible tells us something is sin, it isn't just breaking the rules. Sin begins when something becomes your love instead of God. And ultimately, we love ourselves more than we love God. That's why we sin. When we were tempted, it's to love something that can bring us pleasure. And we believe that God won't be the one to do that, so we run to something else. Friends, sin is spiritual adultery. We don't fall into sin, we choose it. Sin isn't just breaking the rules. Sin begins with something that becomes more important to us than God. And we desire it in the wrong proportions. And good desires are easily misused and misunderstood. Eating is good. Gluttony is sin. Sleep is good. Laziness is sin. Work is good, but focusing on work and neglecting your family is sin. Lust is when desire starts taking over and when we act in this wrong and, and this misplaced desire, and then sin is the result. So don't ever say that you've sinned, but you didn't want to. Don't ever say you have sinned, but you really couldn't help it. You always do what you most want to do. And when you sin, you're doing exactly what you want to do. And he says here, sin will lead to death. The death comes from the sin. The sin comes from the conception. The conception comes from being seduced. A fatal attraction to something that you love more than God. That's the source of temptation. Last is the process of temptation. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Sin takes you farther than you want to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay and it costs you more than you're willing to pay. James says in verse 15, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. When your 
Epi desires, entice you, seduce you away, what happens? He says, conception, which leads to birth. Conception means something inside that'll eventually come outside. You might be ready to, to punch someone in the face this week. You might be ready to just beat the snot out of them. But it all starts with anger conceived in your heart, and it gives birth to sin later. All sinful actions in our lives start as little embryos in the heart first. I heard once, what's, what's down in the well comes up with the bucket. And this is huge for us to understand in the life of a Christian. We need to understand this about ourselves. Why are we so bitter over some things? Because it's something you once had and now it's been taken from you and that's why you're bitter or angry about it. And why are you, some of you so anxious in life? Why are you so afraid? Why are some so tempted to lie? Let's take that one for a moment. Only because I have an illustration this week. Person says they had to lie. I'll use an example from my house. Why is there nail polish on the wall in the bathroom? Just for the record, me and Katie didn't do it. But my kids tell me who did, and the culprit, whom I'm quite certain did, says, I didn't do it. Why? Why does she say that? We, we have to look carefully to see what's going on. What, what's giving birth to that lie? She isn't doing, just, doing it just because. No, there's a progression that already happened in her heart. And we come into this situation after sin has been conceived and now birthed. She's lying. Why? Fear. If mom and dad found out that I wanted to do this because I wanted to help paint the walls, then I might get discipline, and I don't like discipline. The fear which is conceived in their little heart gives birth to the lie, and the little embryo of fear comes out as an attraction to their comfort. They don't want discipline. They want to skate by with nothing happening, and so they lie. Friends, do you see how this works in your own heart? You see, when, when you sin, there is always a reason. And Scripture consistently displays this pattern. This is why you need to read your Bible. You need to read it. And you read it with your eyes open, and you see it. Especially in the Old Testament, as we look at stories. Cain did not merely murder Abel, but Cain allowed his epidesire to provoke jealousy and rage action, resulting in a fearful engagement with God that drove him east of Eden. Aaron did not merely craft a golden gaff, but he allowed the fear of letting the people down and, and a faltering belief in an unseen God to provoke him to sin. Or even Saul, that we just finished in 1 Samuel, did not merely kill everyone in his path in an attempt to end David's life, he did it out of a pattern of jealousy for his own glory instead of God's glory. And friends, every single one of those examples follows the pattern here in James 1, 13 through 15. And I don't know how many times I have to sit down, and I'm sure there's a lot more in the future, and explain to my kids that the pattern that they're leading in their life will resort in death. The pattern of lying leads to death. 
And here's what I mean. I've said this on numerous occasions. You want to ask your, my kids, they can attest to us. That if they continue to have these sinful habits, then when they get older, they will lie and they will get caught. Because you always do. They possibly lose their job. Or they continue to lie and they'll lose their marriage. Or they continue to lie and they'll lose so much of themselves. They don't understand and know truth anymore. And because James is right, when sin is conceived, it always gives birth. And, and birth, right, usually cause for great celebration here, right? Who doesn't like seeing a newborn baby? And what happens? Once a baby is born, what do babies do? It grows and it grows and it grows, becomes stronger. So, so once sin is conceived in his birth, it grows and grows stronger. And what does it happen then? What, what does he say? It brings death. And this is what James is speaking to all of us this morning. Habits are a good thing when they are habits to please and glorify God. One book that I love and I've read and I try to give it away, especially to graduates when I have opportunity, is the book by J.C. Ryle, Thoughts for Young Men. It's not just for men, it's for both. In it he says, habits like trees are strengthened by age. A boy may bend an oak when it's a sapling, Hundred men and cannot root it up when it's fully grown tree. And we develop habits at a very young age. Some are good and some are bad. Both lead us somewhere. And J.C. Ryle is right. They're like a tree planted and watered. It will grow. Now the question is, what are the habits in our lives? Are they the ones that lead to life in God or ones that lead to death through a life of sin? So we need to understand and apply what scriptures say about the nature and the source and the process of temptation. One of the books that I read this week was an old Puritan book by John Owen on temptation. Owen provides both analysis and diagnosis for tempted souls with directions for watching and praying in order to avoid temptation. It's a great book. But wise, he is a physician here of souls and often Owen also offered up counsel to the person already tempted in a tenacious grip. He says, suppose the soul has been surprised by temptation and entangled at, at unawares so that now it is too late to resist the first entrances of it. What shall such a soul do to it to be not be plunged into it and carried away by the power thereof? And he counsels us. He counsels, he counseled me this week in, in, in four areas. And I want to share that with you because I think it's helpful to you and hopeful so this is in your notes. You're going to have to write this down if you're, if you're taking notes. Uh, and I'll try to phrase it in, in my words and, and, and try to communicate what he's saying. This, this was written a long time ago, 1700s. He says, first, we need to pray and ask the Lord for help, right? We've seen this already, haven't we, in James? When, when faced with trials of various kinds, what does James say in, in, in verse 4 and 5? To ask God for wisdom. To pray for wisdom, to, to seek God for help. You're, you're about to, to sink under the waves, the waters to your neck. You're, you're grasping for air and gulping mouthfuls of water. Your breath is gone. You're about to go under. What do you do? You cry out for help. You, you pray. And we are to cry out to Jesus to save you. So that's the, the first, the most immediate step is to pray. Second, we need to run to Jesus. And why do we run to Jesus? Because he's already conquered temptation. 
Running to Jesus, of course, is what we do when we pray, but when we are strongly tempted, don't just turn to Jesus in a general way. Run to him in a specific and tangible help, remembering that he has already conquered temptation for us. Hebrews says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect being tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Remember, Jesus was tempted, not first and foremost as an example, but as our brother, as our captain and our king. And so we run to Jesus, our hero, our champion. Christ defeated sin. He crushed the serpent's head. The battle is already won. And so we run to Jesus, our conquering king. So we pray, run to Jesus. Third, we expect the Lord to give deliverance. I read this earlier. I'm going to say it again. This is a verse that you need to memorize. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I learned that verse when I was in college. I learned it in college because in college I wanted to get a job, and I got a job at JCPenney's, and my friends went with me, and one friend was in the, uh, the section where they sold suits, and I was jealous because they got money if they sold number suits. The other friend was in shoes. I didn't get to go to shoes. I went to the men's department, and next to the men's department was women's lingerie. And I went to my professor like, I'm here as a single college student, and this is what's next to me. And he said, friend, you need to memorize God's word. And I'm serious. Like that protected me from being swayed to something I don't want to be swayed to. We need to hold God's word in our hearts. And Jesus, and he says, God's word says here that he'll provide a way of escape. And I said this a number of weeks ago, you don't, you don't realize that maybe you are that way of escape that God's providing to someone else. Don't discount what God's doing. He's doing a million things all the time. And God may give us sufficient grace to endure the temptation. He, he may rebuke the enemy so that he, he flees from you. Or may receive and revive with some refreshing comfort from his spirit and encouragement from his word. But be sure of this. The Lord has more ways to deliver us than Satan has ways to tempt us. As 1 John says, he who is in you is greater than who is in the world. The fourth thing that Owen says is we need to repair, re repair the breach and get back on the right path. He says, finally, after you've found some immediate relief from the Lord, repair the breach and get back on the happy and narrow road of righteousness. C.S. Lewis said, a sum can be put right, but only by going back till you find the air and working it afresh from that point. Never by simply going on. Evil can be undone, but it cannot be developed into good. Time does not heal it. And it's important then for us to figure out why and how we entered into temptation in the first place. Big sins always follow little sins. Sins of commission usually follow sins of neglect. And when you've found yourself unusually tempted, you need to follow the trail back. And you'll probably find carelessness or prayerlessness or neglect of your soul. So we need to ask the Lord to search us and to know our heart and to try our thoughts 
and to see if there's any grievous way in us and to lead us in the way of everlasting, as Psalm 139 says. We need, to, we need to go back. So this is helpful to my soul. The book is Temptation by John Owen. But there was a number, another sermon that impacted me this week that I read. It was preached by Thomas Chalmers, a great Scottish preacher in the 1840s, and he shared a sermon that was his most famous. And it was called The Explosive Power of a New Affection. And here is his thesis statement. The love of God and the love of the world are two affections, not merely in a state of rivalship, but in a state of enmity. They cannot dwell together. The only way to dispose of an old affection is by the explosive power of a new one. Now listen, friends, the only way to have victory here in our lives, is not by just saying no. It can't be done just by that. And I could go on for hours for you just to, to say no and that you would, you would go out thinking I'm just gonna, I'm gonna somehow just muscle through and you will fail. Because all that is is trying to change a behavior. But you won't love Jesus more. And you will fail because you're only looking to change and modify the behavior in your life. And you will try to rely on yourself. And you cannot succeed because your love hasn't changed. The only way to answer these temptations that come into our lives to sin is through spiritual passion. Not just negative thoughts about sin, not just discipline, not just saying no. You have to fall in love with somebody. I know you men don't like to talk about this love, ooey-gooey, gushy stuff. But it's true. See, growth in the Christian life isn't a modified behavioralism. God doesn't want you to be good. He wants you to be holy. To be strange in this world, set apart for him. But you can't do that if you're only looking at yourself in the midst of trials. This is why James says what he says a few verses earlier. You know, last week, but he's talking about the poor person and the rich person, the, the, the lowly brother in circumstances. What is he to do? He's to boast in his exaltation. And what is his exalted position? If you're a Christian, the Bible says that you were exalted because of Jesus Christ, of what Christ has done for you. And you're to look and see how God sees you in his son. And you look at Ephesians 2. And friends, this is not changing your behavior. You will never overcome temptation unless you remember who you are in Jesus Christ. And only a lover can do this. But then the rich, they are to boast in their humiliation, their, their low position. They're to take pride in their lowness. The, the way to humble yourself is to remind yourself that you're a sinner saved by grace. In other words, the poor person is supposed to take pride by remembering the glory of grace, but the rich person is supposed to deal with the temptation to arrogance. The poor person deals with temptation to despair by remembering the glory of grace, but the rich person deals with temptation of, to arrogance by remembering the grace of his glory, that the glory that comes to us is strictly by the grace of God. It's nothing that we can earn on our own. And friends, the only way to break the grip of sin in your heart, the only way to break the grip of a beautiful object in your heart is to show 
a more beautiful object. You have to look to Jesus. Why do you think I want to show you him every week? Because we need to see Jesus. It should affect every part of our lives. Parents, you know this is true. If you parent your kids only for their behavior, you're missing their heart. They may act good, but they won't love Jesus. And it doesn't get any easier as you get older. We may act good here or act good in our lives, but if we don't love Jesus, we've missed it. We need to look to him. Because just saying no isn't enough. We need to look to Jesus. We need to be enamored with Jesus. So in love with Jesus that when temptation comes in, it's of no appeal to us because we love him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word that is a sharp sword to my soul. And I wish I could stand before your people and say that I haven't chose to love myself and love other things this week. But you know that would be a lie. And every single one of us seated here this morning has this, this tension in our lives to either love the world or love you. God, I pray for those that are seated here this morning that do not have that tension. They just want to love the world. I pray that you would break them, that you would crush them in their desires for the things that displease you, that they would understand this glorious gospel, that you would give them faith to believe. Father, help us as, as Christians to continue to be faithful in our lives, to love you, to be in your word, uh, to read it and to memorize it and study it, to love you more. And we know that's the only way to battle these temptations that come into our lives. Help us. Help us to love you. Help us to serve you. For your honor and your glory. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.